What's the hardest thing you've ever done? Few of you have a few years and decades to kind of think through some of those, uh, you know, filing cabinet memories. So in order to help make it a little bit briefer, um, what's the hardest thing that you've ever done that comes to recent memory? When, you, when I say that, it may be one of the hardest things you've ever done. It doesn't have to be the hardest, but what's one of the hardest things that you've ever done? For me, the most recent thing that comes to my mind is completing my doctorate. Um, there were a lot of setbacks and sacrifices that had to happen, which I knew would be part of the process. This would be uh, usually what is three years of in-school learning and then three years of putting together a doctoral project, presenting it, defending it, and hearing whether you pass or fail, and then hopefully graduating if, if you pass. Well, it was hard right from the beginning. It was, it was hard, first of all, because it was humbling. I had to get all of my GPA records from seminary and submit them to the school that I was going to. I went to uh, Biola uh, University, Talbot Seminary out on the West Coast, one of the best uh, conservative evangelical schools on the West Coast. And I submitted my grades and the GPA wasn't high enough. Now, uh, to be fair, I had kind of goofed off all the way through school because I found school easy all of the time and never developed the habits of learning. I could remember what I read and I could regurgitate it and I could remember what I heard, but those things don't necessarily equate to learning, right? You go to church on a weekly basis. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You can hear stuff, and you can repeat stuff, but that doesn't mean you've learned stuff, right? That happens. I'm living example of that. And so I had to start my application with writing a letter about why it would be different this time and why I would apply myself to the work. Humbling. What a start. That was really, really hard to write. But right from the beginning, it didn't go well. The first three years, really, really good. We got to learn, uh, and, the, and the track that I was taking in my doctoral research was preaching the literary forms of the Bible. And I took that because the Bible is not as much of a book as it is more like a newspaper. A newspaper has different kinds of writing depending on the different sections. The, the front page will be different than the classifieds, and the cartoons will be different than the sports pages, and, you know, the classified ads will be different uh, than the editorials and all of those kinds of things. And we automatically understand the rules of how to read those. Actually, I just realized that I'm dating myself. If you don't know what a newspaper is, you may need to ask your parents or someone a little bit older than you to show you what a newspaper is. But that's what reading the Bible is like, and that's the way I teach the Bible, that if you don't understand the genre of the literature you are trying to read, you ultimately won't understand the message that God wants to say through that text and through that genre. So we spent three years of in-school learning. Two weeks out of every year traveling to California, spending time in June in class, 
8 to 5, 8 to 4.30, and then having three or four hours of homework every night. You'd think that going to California would be kind of fun. Sun, surf, beach. You rarely got to see it because of the amount of work that we were doing. It was hard. But then the last semester, our uh, teacher, our director said, we should probably talk about your project. And he said, you know, the difference between a PhD and a doctorate is that you have to do something with your doctorate. A PhD can be completely theoretical and it can be nothing applicable in the real world at this time. When you do a doctorate, this is for practical ministry skills. So he said this, do something that you want to be an expert in for the rest of your life. And as I looked over the landscape of preaching and what had been talked about and what had been done, I realized that there wasn't much new that was coming out. The teaching of genre is, is new, but for me to then redo all of that research, that didn't make a lot of sense. And so I realized, I, I think God has a different calling for me. I think he wants me to help churches that are struggling financially and wondering if they're going to be able to survive and how to help them have vision and how to help them move forward. And if they can't move forward, then help them close well. Help them stop the ministry that they're doing. I had this, this whole idea of what could be done. And my idea was, here are all these mainline denominations. Here are all these churches that are just simply holding on to a building because it's their building. And there's like 10 or 20 people that are coming. And they can barely pay the bills. And so they start to do tours, right? They do tours because it's an old historical type of building. What if that could be sold? What if that money could be used for the same passion with which they started the church hundreds of years ago in the first place? I know that sounds awful, right? Pastor thinking, how can I help churches close? But, but hear me well. All churches close eventually, right? All of the churches that we study in the Bible, in the New Testament, how many of them are still around? None. But they have a history. Much like you and I have a shelf life in our lives, eventually our time expires. It's our job to do something, to leave something for the next generation. It's our job to help them. Whether that's our kids, I think that's biblical. I also think it's biblical for us to leave a legacy as Christians for the next Christians who are coming. And so helping Christians leave a financial legacy for those that are coming. Not for them to just sit on their laurels, but to have the exact same passion. That's what I wanted to study. So I did a pivot and I decided to write a project on how is money being raised from evangelical ministry initiatives and new ones. How did those ministries start? How are they getting funded? What can we learn? And how do they compare to what secular nonprofits are doing to raise funds in order to fund their mission? Well, that turned a six-year doctoral study into ten because I didn't take any classes in fundraising. I didn't take any classes in stewardship. I had to relearn all of it. In the middle of that, we also moved to Rochester from Albany. So studies had to take a little bit of a break while we changed the churches that we were pastoring. My initial project was to survey secular and evangelical 
nonprofits to see how they raised money. And I put out a survey, asked people to respond, said you can, you can get a gift card. Uh, we're going to do a random drawing for an iPad. I mean, I made this very, very lucrative for people to respond. Do you know how many responses I got? None. None. I phoned people. I phoned friends. Hey, can you recommend anyone? Hey, would you participate in this survey? And I either got straight out, no, we don't want to share that information, or I was just, they never got back to me, or they said, yeah, we'll do it, or they, and they never did. I got permission to write up that project failure, because that happens sometimes. The data isn't able to be collected. The things I assumed that would be able to work didn't work. I got permission from the doctor of ministry director to go ahead and write it up as a well-documented failure and send it into my readers. I spent weeks writing up why the project failed and all of the possible uh, things that could have happened. And I sent it to my readers and my readers said, that's unacceptable. You need to do it again. You need to do a second project. You need to do something different. I said, but my program director said that, you know, the whole, the whole director of the whole doctor of ministry program said, go ahead and write it up this way. Well, he changed his mind. He said, no, no, your readers are right. Uh, you'll have to go ahead and redo your project in a different way. It wasn't a full, totally different project. It was a retooling of the, of the project that I had, but it was very limited in scope. I'm still not sure what the full value of it was. And the tough part about this was every year that I stayed in past the six-year mark meant $1,500 just to stay in the program. It cost $1,500 every year for me to not submit anything just to stay in the program. That's $6,000 in four years. And how did I graduate? Well, I graduated in January, February of 2020 to a pandemic where we couldn't celebrate as a family, we couldn't go, we couldn't be hooded, we couldn't walk across the line. And so many of, of our students and uh, graduates understand this. They know the challenge of just what it was like to try and graduate last year and how difficult it was to not be able to be given that diploma, to not have your family there to celebrate with you. It just felt like I couldn't do anything. And do you know what I've done with my doctorate so far? Do you know what I've done? I've done two things. The first thing is, is that I've put Reverend Doctor on every form of official communication that I ever write. And do you know how much I write letters? I don't. I don't write any letters. I don't do that at all. I don't put it in my email signature. Well, I think I do. I think I started to put it in my email signature if I'm introducing myself to someone. But that's just, that's a formality. That's all the way at the bottom. The other thing I do is that I offer to write doctor's notes for people who need excuses to do something. Hey, if you need a note from a doctor, let me know. Do you know how many people have taken me, taken me up on that offer to write them a doctor's note to get out of work, to go to a ball game, or take the rest of the day off? Hey, you know, I'm a doctor. I can do that. Do you know what people say? Thanks. <laughs> and no one takes me up on that. That's what I've done with my doctorate. From the start, it was hard. All during the process, it was hard. And right now, it's hard telling that story. 
What's the hardest thing you've ever done? Maybe it's something similar to my story where you've taken a job and had to uproot your family and move to another part of the state or another part of the country or maybe to another country. Maybe it's saying goodbye to someone you loved, someone who was taken too soon, tragically or unexpectedly. Maybe the toughest thing you've ever done is raising your kids. And maybe the thing you're wondering is, will they ever grow up? Maybe the toughest thing you've ever done is letting your kids fail as adults. Maybe it's working multiple jobs in order to make ends meet to provide for your family, maybe getting out of debt. Maybe it's overcoming a serious life-changing illness where life will never be the same. Or maybe it's overcoming regrets, wild lifestyle, bad decisions, and it's been really hard to change who you are. If I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper and write down what's the hardest thing you've ever done, what would it be? If you were to take out a piece of paper at home and you were to write down what was the hardest thing you've ever done, what would you put down? The Bible has something to say about the hardest thing you can do and will ever do. And that is, the hardest thing you will ever do is decide to be a Christian. The Bible says that the hardest thing you will ever do is decide to be a Christian. Now, it doesn't seem like that, right? It seems like deciding to be a Christian is actually easy. I mean, in Sunday school, we hear that, hey, if you accept Jesus into your heart, you get to go and be in heaven forever with him. How does that sound? Well, what's the alternative? You don't want to know that. That's horrible. It's awful. Separation from God. You don't want that. You want to be with God forever. You know what? Comparatively speaking, I like this. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. That's where I'm going to go. And so you make that decision. It's so easy to make that decision, right? Anyone, no matter what their past is, can pray for Jesus to forgive them. And they say they will follow them. And we declare them saved, right? But it's actually not an easy choice. And the more that we realize that Jesus is actually the Son of God and what that means in relationship to our story, the more difficult that choice of being a Christian actually feels to us and actually is to us. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to start at the 22nd verse. It's there we read the following words. They came to Bethsaida, and some brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. 
Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go near the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them, not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus is doing the kind of ministry that no one else could do in a way that no one else wanted to or would do it. But that's the kind of power that Jesus had. If you were with us last week, we introduced, we came back to our series called Son of God, where we talked about how can we be sure. And one of the proofs that Mark gives us is eyewitness accounts of incredible physical healings. Miracles are one of the proofs that Jesus is the Son of God. And as they continue to go through doing ministry through all these towns, Jesus wants to help them make the connection that he is the Son of God. He wants them to connect the dots. He asks them, who do you say I am? But not everyone gets it right. They ask the disciples, who do people say I am? John the Baptist. John the Baptist had had incredible ministry. People came to him from the cities to the Jordan River to hear his message of repentance, to be baptized, to prepare the path for the Lord in their own hearts. Maybe you're him. Or maybe you're Elijah, who, if you remember the Old Testament stories, if you grew up in Sunday school, I wish we had time to look into some of those stories about Elijah. I wish we had like another hour where we could look at that together, but we don't. The stuff that Elijah was able to do, the things that he was able to accomplish, the miracles that he was able to do, the way God used him, no wonder people thought that Jesus might be Elijah. Or maybe you're one of the prophets because that's how God seems to be working in these last few millennia. Sure, there was that moment of period of silence between the two testaments, but now here's a prophet again. And so you might be one of those. You might be following in their line. So Jesus does all these things that only God could do, and yet people couldn't connect the dots. So he asked them, well, that's what people say. What do you say? And Peter gets it. You're the Messiah. There's no other solution. There's no other answer. You must be the Messiah. You're the one who is going to free the people of God and return God and his glory to the world by dwelling with his people. But then Jesus does something odd that doesn't make sense to us, especially in our world of business. He doesn't want to leverage who he is. He doesn't want to leverage his talents. He doesn't want to leverage his heritage. He doesn't want to leverage that pedigree. He says, don't tell anyone. But instead, he starts to teach them that he will be killed and rise again. 
And Peter thinks that's a terrible plan. That's not how you restore God's glory to his people. No, you need to do something different. You need to to have a different plan. So Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Isn't that crazy? That someone would actually tell Jesus, no, I don't think you're right. I think there's a better way. I mean, who would ever do something like that? Well, I imagine that talk went something like this. Because I'll be honest, I probably have a lot of Peter in me. I imagine him saying something like, Jesus, this is bad for morale. We get it now. You're the Messiah. And, and we kind of know what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to restore the glory of God to his people. You will free us from our captors and you will restore us to the world stage so that we can influence the world for God. You're going to restore the nation. So let us help you with that. This is, this is a bad strategy. Right? You're telling people that you're going to die. The leaders don't die. As a matter of fact, in a battle... If you're going to send the lead guy out in front, that's suicide. Send the people you don't like first. And put spears behind them so they only have one direction to go. Forward. And then while they get slaughtered, the rest of us can start fighting and start to win the day. No, you stay back. You oversee the command of of all the fields, of all the areas where we're going to be fighting. And then you say where we go and we do that. Don't get killed. That's silly. And if you keep telling them that you're going to die, then you're just trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, you're going to do stuff to try and get yourself killed. And that's a bad strategy. Don't do that. I'm, I guarantee you it's going to go well for you. Because you're the Messiah. Enough of this kind of thinking. And Jesus, just in case you thought that Jesus was always baby Jesus, meek and mild cuts right to the chase of what's happening in verse 33. When G- but when Jesus turned and look at, looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is why being a Christian is the hardest thing you will ever do. And Jesus pulls no punches. Taking up your cross for Jesus means death. That's what a cross is. It is an excruciating, drawn out, public form of humiliating execution. It is not a really nice gold piece that you hang on a necklace and put around your neck. It is not a wonderfully crafted piece of wood that we hang in a building. 
It is an instrument of excruciating execution. And it is very public who is the winner and who is the loser. And Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, they must do this. They must take up their cross. Anything less puts the words of the enemy in our mouth. And we become a spokesperson for Satan. Anything less does not focus on the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Church, what Jesus is warning his disciples about is how not to be a pharisaical hypocrite. If you remember last week, we talked about that we need to watch for those who know the truth but will not yield to it because of the cost that comes with surrendering. That's what Pharisees do. And he said, be on guard against that. And now he's telling them, this is how to avoid being one. This is how not to be a pharisaical hypocrite. Let's be clear. Following Jesus is free. And it is the most costly thing that you could ever get. That you could ever be given. Because it will cost you your life. Rick Warren is the founding pastor of Saddleback Church. And he wrote a very famous book, uh, The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was the number one Christian bestseller for decades. It still helps people understand what their purpose is in life uh, here on this earth. And he has a companion volume for church leaders called The Purpose Driven Church. And in The Purpose Driven Church, he writes this. We move people from come and see to come and die. See, not too long after John the Baptist baptized Jesus, he saw the Lord walking by and said to a couple of his disciples, there goes the Lamb of God. You need to follow him. And Andrew and John started following Jesus and they asked, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus answered, come and see. You can't ask for an easier commitment than that. Just come and see. But over three and a half years, Jesus required more and more of his disciples. He kept turning up the heat by defining what it means to follow him. He said you are his disciples if you obey his word in John 8. Love each other in John 13. And bear much fruit in John 15. And finally, Jesus told his disciples that they must carry their cross. In other words, they must be willing to die to be true disciples. Jesus moved his followers from come and see to come and die. That's the discipleship process of Jesus. And that's what we need to do too. Bonhoeffer, German pastor from the early 1900s to the 1940s, who worked very, very hard against the Nazis, especially with what they were doing for the Jews, uh, to the Jews, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he wrote this. No, God and the world, God and its goods, the worldly goods, are incompatible 
Because the world and its goods make a bid for our hearts. And only when they have won them do they become what they really are. That is how they thrive and that is why they are incompatible with allegiance to God. Our hearts have room, for only, room only for one all-embracing devotion. And we can only cleave to one Lord. In my opinion, this is the challenge of church today. Is that we are filled with pharisaical hypocrites. And there have been times in my life when I have been the flag bearer. Because I want and we want a God who is easy to follow. We want to say we are Christian and surrender little to nothing at all. We hold some back just in case. Jesus is just Jesus on Sunday, but not the rest of the week. And we can't survive in a dog-eat-dog world in our businesses and our communities if we don't look out for who's number one. And the world is watching and thinking, why would I trust in a God that you don't? Now that's some hard truth. It will be a long, narrow road. And it is the hardest thing you will ever do. Faith in Jesus calls all of us to sacrifice whatever is in the way of your heart belonging to him completely. Anything regarding your time, the way you use it. Anything regarding your talents, your passions, your abilities. Anything with your treasure, your possessions, your security. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And it calls for surrender. But I have good news. Jesus doesn't tell us this to be mean. He's telling us this to help. And he's telling us this. Not just. To be honest. But to be helpful. Because here's what he tells us. He doesn't just tell us what we need to do, but why. And he answers the question for us. Why should disciples of Jesus deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, even if it costs them everything? For whoever wants to save their life, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Living for Jesus, no matter what, actually costs us the least. Sacrificing all for Jesus costs us the least. In other words, living for Jesus now is the only thing that pays off in eternity. The cost of obedience. The cost of obedience is far less than the cost of disobedience. And that is what keeps you going through the hard things. You know it will pay off. It's the mindset of an athlete, right? An athlete says, as the alarm goes off at 4 a.m., I am not going to listen to my body that says, this comforter's really nice, this pillow's really great. And it says, no, I'm going to train. I am going to be the best that I can. When they're first learning a sport and they've got talent, they can blow anyone else out of the water. They can be the best in their community. But as soon as they get to the pros, as soon as they get to the Olympics, it's who's worked harder. Because the talent level is almost equal at that level. And any NBA player, any NHL player, any major league player, any NFL player that gets to the highest level says, you never stop working. You never stop sacrificing in order to be the best you can be because someone out there is working harder than you. That's the attitude that Jesus says you need to have, that we need to have the attitude of an athlete because you know it will pay off if you put in the work. It will be better for you. You save your life for all eternity if you lose it for Jesus and the gospel. That's worth living for. And it's the only thing worth dying for. The world's rewards, comfort, wealth, influence, possessions, have no impact on the quality of your soul. And choosing poorly will cost you greatly. Surrendering all for Jesus completely is more than just good for the soul. It's the only thing for the soul. So, how do we bring this home? What do we do? How can we begin to apply this to our lives? Because it seems like such a daunting task. Well, I think what Jesus says here is actually something that we can leverage. Because he says the word ashamed. And that word ashamed is powerful. That if we are ashamed of him now, he will be ashamed of us later when he comes. So I think that's something that we can leverage, not out of fear, but out of opportunity, by thinking it in the opposite way. What's the opposite of ashamed? It's someone who is confident, someone who is proud, someone who is confident in the words and person of Jesus, someone who is proud of the words and person of Jesus, and you welcome them, you want them, and you want them to be displayed through your life. And I think a great place to start putting that into practice is your local church. 
I think it's the best place to start because it's a safe place to start. You're with other people who want to move in the same direction. People who want to help you and support you. People who, if you look to your left and your right, you look around the people who are watching uh, at home and joining us and participating there. It is people who all have said, I will take up my cross and have had various degrees of success and failure doing that. But it's that joy of knowing that someone is going through what you're going through and participating with you and joining you in that same commitment that makes a church a church. It's not attendance on a Sunday morning. It is the commitment to Jesus and His gospel to give all to it, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And isn't it great when you have others with you who have said the exact same thing Doing the exact same thing. It's a safe place to start. That may mean just, you know, being more regular for worship. That may mean just worshiping regularly. If you come once a month or a couple times a month, what if that were to increase and you were to come weekly? What if that were to... You're to get into a group. We've got some fall opportunities coming up for uh, ladies groups. We've got opportunities coming up for a men's group. Uh, And, you know, if you just want to practice what that's like without any agenda, right after church today and all through summer, we've got the BYOP. We've got food. We've got chairs. We've got no agenda. And you can talk about what it means to follow Jesus. You can give by tithing. Not what's left over, but the first fruits. The first off the top and living off the rest. If you need help with that, we just recently finished off a series called Money Talks. It's available on our website and on, our, uh, on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, wherever you enjoy a podcast. You can go find our church and you can listen to how you can align your resources and possessions with following Jesus, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think there's another thing we can do. I think we can share to others that this is a great place for people to find and follow Jesus Christ. I think this is a great place for you to invite friends and family members. I think we've got room, right? I think we've got a few chairs available if you would like to come. And the internet gives us so much more reach than we've ever had possible. What if you were to share? What if you were to invite I think that's a great way to start surrendering to the purposes of Jesus. But there's one more. It's not just worship, not just getting into fellowship groups, growth groups. It's not just giving by tithing. It's not just sharing. I think it's serving. I've talked to many pastors in many churches around, well, everywhere, who all say that the biggest challenge that they have is just we don't have enough volunteers. And I get that. I get that. But Jesus gives us the ability to serve because that's one of the best ways to grow our faith is through experiencing what he's doing because he uses us to do it. And so we've got 10 opportunities for you to serve. We've got Sunday opportunities. You can be on our worship team, vocalists and musicians, 
You can be in an AV and production team. There's a lot of stuff you can do here. You can do sound. You can do live streaming. You can run our pro presenter, which is what shows off everything on the screen here and shows words on the lower thirds if you've ever watched uh, online. Uh, you could be a stage host. Uh, share announcements, welcome people, pray. Uh, you could be a live stream host, minister to people who are joining us from all around the world. And you could be decorating. You could be on our hospitality teams. We've got opportunities for greeters, coffee, ushers, barbecue people. No, wait, I added that one. That's probably just a preference of mine. Just ignore that. Slip of the tongue. Tack kids. That's a, that's a huge, huge need. As my wife said, she, we, we did all the worship up front, all our singing up front today so that she could go back and give uh, our kids' men director, uh, Abby, a break so that she could be on vacation. She's the only one who's volunteering in our kids' ministry. There's opportunities there to serve and nursery. We would love to see our nursery become more than just a drop-in place where moms can be in order to uh, take their child away to maybe a quieter spot where they can be more comfortable. Not that we need to be more comfortable because they're being loud, but just a space where they can be. Imagine that staffed. And there's all sorts of babies crawling around and all sorts of toddlers running around. That would be fantastic to see that kind of growth and serve those parents and those families in that way. And that's just Sunday. Awesome opportunities during the week as well. We've got youth group, middle and high school. We've got our missions team where we gather regularly to pray for our missionaries, to uh, how we can communicate better for more and more people to give and send and go and pray for Alliance Missions and other local missions in the area. Buildings and grounds always needs help. I'm not going to ask Josh to point the camera again to the roof that's sagging, but... Let's just say that that's not the only part of the building that's sagging. And then communications and office help. We would love to have more people helping with social media, helping with printed media, helping with roadside media so that we can get the word out that we're here, that this is a place where you can find and follow Jesus. And then finally, prayer. Praying for our leaders. Praying for our ministry. Praying for the needs of our church family. I think the church is the, one of the best places to surrender because it's safe. It's a safe place to start to push back against the natural tendency that we all have to drift and to choose a life that says, I want to be comfortable more than I want to commit. And to choose the way of the cross. Jesus is clear. Following him is the hardest thing you will ever do. And it is the most worthwhile thing you will ever do. Surrendering all for Jesus is more than just good for the soul. It's the only thing for the soul. Because Jesus saves your soul when you surrender to follow him. Let's close in prayer. With every eye closed, every head bowed, if you are someone who wants to surrender their life to Jesus for the first time, become a follower of Jesus, who wants to save their soul, then if you are joining us in person, then I want to encourage you to connect with me following the service. If you're joining us online, 
Would you just type in chat, I surrender? Or would you message our uh, chat hosts, our live stream hosts, I surrender? And they would love a chance to talk to you or I would be happy to connect with you this week about how you can know for certain that your soul is saved. And we can help you get on a discipleship path that learns what it means to surrender all in a safe way. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us right now, pointing out if there's any areas of our lives where we are pharisaical hypocrites. Where we say we follow you, but we do not want to pay the price. Lord, as we think through the areas of our lives, our work, our neighborhoods, our possessions, our hobbies, our talents. If there is anything that we need to surrender to you, Lord, would you help us to do that? Lord, the cost of obedience seems high, but it is so much less compared to the cost of disobedience. We want to be proud and confident of who you are and what you teach so that when you come, you're proud of us and you're confident in us because of the way that we said all for Jesus for all the world. It's not just a mission statement for us, God. It is our life statement. And may you help that to be ours. Would you help us to surrender all to you, knowing that when we do, that saves our soul. Help us to move to a place where we're not just It's not just come and see for us, but it's come and die because we know it is worth it. We know you can give us life. Jesus, would you help us in this way? And would you bless us now as we go, as we go to partake in some fellowship, as we head off to the rest of our day? May you bless that food, may you bless that fellowship, and may you bless our day, not for our sake, but for the sake of Jesus. We surrender the rest of this day, the rest of this week, and the rest of our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.